What's the biggest mistake that you've ever made in your life? You know, the one with the most widespread and terrifying consequences. Most of us have made mistakes that may have affected us deeply, but rarely have we caused an event that resulted in widespread damages that ripple across the pages of history. For myself, my biggest mistake was likely convincing my sister to let me take the car out on a date while my parents were away on vacation. Fifteen minutes after picking my date up, I managed to turn directly into oncoming traffic. Karma evidently didn't want me to have that date. Thankfully, the opposing driver and their passengers were okay. The damage was merely to our wallets and my pride. Of course, I didn't come out of my bedroom till about 3 p.m. on the day that my parents returned and found their car missing. I would have stayed locked in that safe room even longer, but just couldn't hold out from the bathroom any longer and was forced to finally face the music. Likely, the worst mistake you've ever made in your life is comparable to mine. But, if you were to ask Mao Zedong that question, he might have a slightly more consequential answer. One that ends in the literal starvation of 45 million of his own people. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is episode four regarding the life and legacy of China's most infamous dictator, Mao Zedong, his great leap forward. Being the leader of a country isn't an easy job which is part of the reason that I continually wonder why we in America are consistently running candidates that are more than 10 years beyond the typical retirement age of 65. It apparently is just me, but I kind of think any job that grants you the launch codes to thousands of nuclear weapons is more of an in-the-prime kind of gig, rather than a second career at the end of the road type. I do have some sympathy when unintended consequences pop up for world leaders. But the mistakes made during the Great Leap Forward defy rational thought. They are so obvious that my freshmen in world history ought to be able to see the outcome from the start was going to be substantially worse than turning into oncoming traffic while you are distracted that a girl finally said yes to going out with you on a date. German philosopher Karl Marx preached that communism will come from the unique social class of the urban proletariat. That it was the industrial revolution that would set the Marxist revolution in motion and carry it to its inevitable victory over the capitalist owners. The problem for 1950s China, however, was that there wasn't much of an urban proletariat, namely because there wasn't a whole lot of industry in their urban centers. To be considered a legitimate world power, one that would be capable of removing the big mountain of imperialism, China would have to industrialize, and they would have to do it fast. 
This obstacle was faced by a number of nations during this time period. England had started the Industrial Revolution, but only after it had been cut off from the rest of the European markets due to Napoleon's continental blockade. Centuries later, the Industrial Revolution had become a prerequisite for First World nations, and all of China's peer nations were more successful than China in achieving industrialization. Japan rapidly industrialized, but had to take over countless numbers of islands and the northern part of China in order to secure the raw materials to do so. Stalin rapidly industrialized Russia by literally creating cities from nothing near the heavily polluting mines which extracted the resources. Then he forcibly extracted the people from their farms to place them more efficiently in forced labor camps attached to the mines. Juan Perón's Argentina attempted to rapidly industrialize by selling off excess meat in order to purchase the resources necessary to create their own factories. Unfortunately, you have to sell a whole lot of steaks to build Silicon Valley. China's industrialization quest began with a boast that was always going to be difficult to live up to. In 1957, while in Moscow, Mao announced his aim to, quote, overtake all capitalist countries in a fairly short time and become one of the richest, most advanced, and powerful countries in the world. Although it wasn't a direct challenge, Moscow took Mao's statement as a challenge. Khrushchev, the Soviet premier that both banged a shoe on the lectern at the United Nations and who was upset that he couldn't visit Disneyland, wasn't to be outdone by the Chinese. After all, this was the man who once warned that if you start throwing hedgehogs under me, I shall throw a couple of porcupines under you. Soon, Nikita Khrushchev announced that the USSR was on pace to surpass the US in key aspects of industrialized production within 10 years. The one-upmanship continued with the check and raise from Mao's corner. The Great Leap Forward, the second of Mao Zedong's five-year economic plans, were thrown out as the response. In 1958, Mao unveiled the catchphrase of exceeding the UK, catching the USA. He detailed the goal of surpassing industrialized Great Britain in steel production within 15 years and catching up to the United States in 50 years. Students today know that China has succeeded regarding this timeline. After all, China is a near-peer competitor to the United States. But back in 1958, the statement was laughable. At this point, China was teetering between third and second world status. Their backwards agrarian society was one of the last places on earth that Marx would have imagined a communist revolution succeeding. Mao would need help backing up his boast, which is where his policy begins to distractedly steer into traffic. Disagreements between Mao and Khrushchev, as well as a deep personal animosity that came after Mao forced Khrushchev to borrow his swim trunks and water wings for a diplomatic meeting, 
meant that the People's Republic of China would be taking on this Herculean task all by herself. Mao referred to it proudly as a policy of self-reliance, meaning that the money, muscle, and mistakes would all be provided by the Chinese themselves. China, prior to the Great Leap Forward, was facing a number of difficulties. In 1949, they had not yet received diplomatic acknowledgement from the United States, one of the two superpowers of the era. This meant that there would be no economic trade nor assistance to be had from the West. Combine this with an unwillingness to become too aid-dependent on Russia, and neither of the superpowers were able to intercede on behalf of their people. Post-Civil War, internal fighting with anti-communists continued up until 1953, and thus a lot of Chinese manpower that hadn't already been lost in the Civil War or Second Sino-Japanese War were already used up. Economic inequality was a deeply pressing concern. Many of the wealthiest factory owners fled to Taiwan with the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek. The majority of wealth was held in the hands of only a privileged few. 80% of China's population would have been properly referred to as impoverished peasants. These ordinary people worked long hours for low pay. For those that wanted to pivot, they had virtually no education, and their life expectancy in 1949 was a measly 36 years. For those that love history, these figures of 80% peasants and 36 years for a lifespan compare pretty favorably to feudal Europe, an era that was more than 500 years before the time period that we're speaking of. Overtaking the British in a decade and a half was an insane pipe dream. China's industry suffered from a severe lack of investment. The West had thrown its support behind Chiang Kai-shek, who happened to now be running the Republic of China on the island of Taiwan. The continuous civil wars as well as foreign wars had destroyed the prior instruments of industry. What remained were vastly outdated machines. Life on the farm wasn't much better. The initial land redistribution policies of the Red Army meant that the multitude of peasants were now owners of parcels of diminishing size. The land just wasn't enough for them to make a serious living off of. Additionally, the soil was in a state of steep decline. The wars had kept China's citizenry away from their lands, and when they returned there were absolutely no fertilizers nor tractors to start back up with. Despite the clear challenges, Mao offered a vision for a different China. One of my favorite things to show students are the propaganda posters regarding the Nanjing Bridge over the Yangtze River. It imagines a wide two to three car bridge crossing the river for as far as the eye can see. Modern cars traverse the painting that imagines a bridge interspaced with trucks packed full of product. 
The people fill the bridge's pedestrian walkways and gaze down at the green space filled with mountains that provide some tranquility to go along with the sounds of industry, such as the train traveling along the bridge's underpass, as well as modern navy and commercial ships purposefully sailing the river. What is so remarkable about the image is the fact that it came to pass. Today, the Nanjing Bridge is an idyllic picture of what China intended to be. Every once in a while, state planning can get something right, even if its success rate is similar to that of a broken clock or a blind squirrel finding a nut. China today is a fully industrialized economic peer competitor of the United States. Mao's vision had come to pass, but that doesn't mean that the path there was smooth. That path began with the Agrarian Land Reform Act of 1950. Rather than redistributing land to the people, China decided to redistribute people to the land. These cadres of workers were forcibly relocated to make up for labor shortfalls and to even out the population distribution. Once the workers arrived in their new lands, they participated with the workers who had remained in place in what were called speak bitterness meetings. These meetings were run by the mobs of angry peasants. The biggest landholders slash landlords were forced to publicly discuss all of the evils that they had committed in their unholy pursuit of capital. There was a fine line here for the landowners, and most didn't survive the tightrope dance that the trials necessitated. If they left out some of the crimes they had committed, then the angry mob judged them guilty and executed them because they weren't forthcoming enough. If they revealed too much, then the mob would grow angry, judge them guilty, and execute them. By Mao's own admission, two to three million landlords were killed by those that they had previously overseen. That is the equivalent of the entire population of Chicago today. The mob courts had no incentive to pardon their former bosses. After all, an executed landlord wasn't entitled to any land anymore. The initial wave of land redistribution managed to successfully increase agricultural output, but it was too gradual for the chairman's liking. The central government assigned mutual aid teams to make sure that the workers had the tools necessary to work the fields. But by 1955, only 14% of all workers had voluntarily chosen to join in the government's vision for land-sharing agricultural producers' cooperatives or APCs. Failing to persuade the newly unshackled workers, the authoritarian government put its foot down and began to order land sharing. Despite the push, the peasants continued to join these APCs reluctantly. After arriving at the collective, they were sorted into teams and then into the brigades which made up the commune. Each team was given a task to complete with the tools that were available to them. This included land reclamation, as well as the construction of hospitals, schools, and sideline industries. 
the communes were designed to be self-reliant, much in the same way that China sought to be removed from any and all connections to imperialism. The communes were to form a communist network, sharing knowledge and capability with their surrounding communes. 53,000 communes crisscrossed the arid plateaus of China, covering 90 million acres of arable land. The collectivization then began in 1954 in two stages. During the first stage, the land was pooled among the people. Individual farmers retained ownership of the land, but produce was divided 70% on the basis of labor and 30% interest on contributed land. The second stage began in 1956, during which all land was seized from private hands and transferred to the collective commune. The products produced were, from this point on, purely divided up on the basis of labor. The initial hesitancy and lackluster production numbers resulted in Mao unleashing upon China an idea that he would soon regret. It was called the Hundred Flowers Campaign. It carried the slogan of, Let 100 flowers bloom, let 100 schools of thought content. This campaign encouraged the peasants to let loose their complaints in an effort to find problems that could be addressed. It was a democratic grassroots movement to identify and fix the challenges that were holding back the communes, and thus the country. The concept is wonderful, but when you hire an outside consultant to figure out what is wrong with your company, you have to be prepared that the conclusion might be that you are the problem. In Mao's mind, the Hundred Flowers campaign was an utter failure. The peasantry let loose a biblical flood of complaints about the newly formed People's Republic of China. The intellectuals of China soon joined in, as Mao's initiative even allowed non-communist members to join in on the complaining. In the day and age of the internet, it is wonderful to be able to see review after review for each and every location to stay or eat or who to hire. But give the ability for anyone to review and you are guaranteed to find a fair share of one-star commentary from those individuals who never seem able to achieve happiness. The Hundred Flowers campaign made sure that the CCP got more than its fair share of one-star reviews. In this rare instance, Mao was doing the right thing. A scholar himself, he believed that he could justify to the masses the rightness of socialism. Once he proved his point intellectually, he felt that the learned classes as well as the peasants would jump on the bandwagon and work to their full potential for the good of the entire state, or at least for the good of him. Jonathan Spence's work, The Search for Modern China, summarizes the complaints found on Peking University's hastily constructed democratic wall. They included objections about CCP control over intellectuals, the harshness of previous mass campaigns against counter-revolutionaries, the slave-like way the party followed Soviet models, the low standards of living, the prohibition of foreign literature, economic corruption among party cadres, 
and the fact that party members enjoyed many privileges which make them a race apart. Facing an onslaught of complaints, Mao took an abrupt turn. Not quite as abrupt as I did onto ongoing traffic, but still quite abrupt. In July of 1957, seven months after the campaign had begun, current events had gotten ahead of his ideas as Nikita Khrushchev had gone on to publicly denounce the late Joseph Stalin. Mao, already fearful that the same fate would await him, quickly put a lid on the dish that he had first opened. He announced, falsely, that the Hundred Flowers campaign had been infiltrated by right-wingers and that the complaints were false reviews rather than serious concerns which needed to be addressed. Soon a new campaign trampled the ground where the Hundred Flowers had previously bloomed. This time it was an anti-rightness campaign that was deployed to the communes to re-educate the agricultural workers about the greatness of Mao, the party, and the glories of working for the state. The workers, which had previously spoken up at the request of the government, were summarily denounced and executed. It isn't always a great idea to put your real name on the reviews that you leave. Criticism against the government ceased one year into the anti-rightness campaign, a campaign in which anyone who spoke up against the government was executed. The appearance of public acceptance meant that it was time for the next phase in the communization of China, 1958's Great Leap Forward. This was the centerpiece of Mao's plan to catch up to Great Britain within 15 years. The goal was for the farmers to produce a significant surplus of food to be sold abroad in order to expand Chinese industry. It was a model that Juan Perón also used unsuccessfully in his attempts to industrialize Argentina. There are a couple of obvious flaws in a plan such as this. First of all, it assumes that the workers are being unproductive and wasteful at the start of the campaign. Secondly. Purchasing factory parts and steel infrastructure is appreciably larger than the profit margins of exported food, meaning that you have to produce absolute tons of surplus food in order to make a tiny dent in your industrial needs. Third, you kind of need industrialized products, such as tractors, to efficiently increase your food production. This isn't an instance of whether the chicken or the egg came first. We know that industrialization comes before greater production. Thus, the plan was backwards from the beginning, as China had literally no industry capable of making modern farm instruments, which were key to increasing production. Previously, workers had produced crops in order to make an income. Farmers know that if you produce too much food, the price drops. Therefore, they are very careful to not overproduce, which would cost them labor time, which, due to the price dropping because of product oversupply, would amount to unpaid overtime. Mao decided to fix this problem by taking away all of the peasants' money. Literally. From here on out, commune workers were paid in work points. 
these work points only arrived at the end of the year and would merely cover your basic necessities, all of which had to be found on the commune because from this point forward, peasants needed a passport to travel from one area of the country to another. In 1958, rural China was beginning to look a lot like the antebellum South. Mao believed that efficiency could be incentivized. Not, however, in the way that capitalism used extra pay to incentivize their workers. Instead, he believed that an absurd series of prizes would work to make the people of China produce significantly more food than ever before. In many ways, it's the same racket that the wonderful Girl Scouts of America used to capture all of their free labor. The girls, of which my daughter was one, all look at the prize sheet and their eyes are all immediately drawn to the free tickets to Disneyland. Their hopes and dreams drown out the realism that even young girls have to feel deep on their insides. They then brave the freezing weather to knock on complete strangers' doors to offer them some of the most delicious cookies that we have on the planet. Door to door for weeks on end, and what prize do they end up with? In my household, 200 boxes sold got us a notebook, a butterfly stuffy, and 10 pounds added to my waistline. Zhang Lengla, a man who grew up in the background of The Great Leap Forward, describes everyone as being full of enthusiasm at the start of the campaign. They repeated the slogan, The corn will grow higher the more you desire so much that they started to believe it. Each commune would irrationally boast about how much they would increase their production by. The prize for meeting or exceeding these expectations was to be awarded the honorary title of Sputnik. Zhang's commune came last in the meeting, which required them to pledge the highest total, as it was criminal to promise less than those who went before you. His group boasted that it could produce 400 tons per acre, a feat that was four times more than the opening group had pledged. A teacher that dared to ask how thick the grain would be if we produced that much was immediately denounced as a rightist and was subsequently punished by her commune. There was to be no questioning Mao's wishes. China's single greatest asset was people, so Mao unleashed them. Individual choices were taken away from the citizens in an effort to boost production. Daycares were set up by each commune in order to free up moms to work in the fields. Meals were served at one common location referred to as the commune canteen in order to increase efficiency in the name of freeing up workers for agricultural production. Adult children were freed up from the challenging tasks of taking care of their elderly loved ones as each commune shifted these burdens to what became lovingly known as the Houses of Happiness. 
You know how people tell you that you can be anything that you want to be as long as you put your mind to it? It isn't quite right, at least not in the short term. The day that my parents arrived home from vacation, 16-year-old me did everything that he possibly could to be invisible. It just wasn't in the cards. The great Chinese philosopher Confucius understood, saying that, in all things, success depends on previous preparation. And without such previous preparation, there is sure to be failure. There are two things lacking in the preparation for the Great Leap Forward. The first was the lack of industry. Mao's plan hinged on farming enough surplus crops that they would be able to afford the things necessary to make steel, which in turn was the thing that was necessary to increase the production of crops, which means that they were stuck in an endless loop. Mao believed in the capabilities of the peasants. Thus, he told them to make the steel themselves, what became known as backyard furnaces. Never underestimate the willingness of the Chinese peasants to follow the great leader. Despite a complete lack of knowledge regarding the production of steel, the communes tore down every bit of iron and steel that could be found in order to melt them. We're talking about tables, chairs, teapots, as well as pots and pans. This enthusiasm lasted around the clock, as historian Philip Short tells us that officially everyone on the communes were supposed to have at least six hours of sleep, every two days. But some brigades boasted of working up to four or five days without stopping. Mao had come down with a case of steel fever, and historian Frank Decatur reveals that China was dipped into a sea of fire. These DIY home steel furnaces produced pig iron rather than steel, and the result was that the farming instruments created, such as plows, regularly broke while tilling the soil. The landscape around the communes grew ominously desolate, as wood was needed to maintain the absurdly high temperatures to make steel. Soon, peasants were digging up caskets, disposing of the remains inside, and recycling the coffin's wood to keep the fires going. Even the dead were raised in order to make Mao's vision come to life. The second glaring mistake comes in the form of improper preparation to farm the land. Enter into the story Trofrim Lashensko a Soviet agronomist and biologist who had failed upwards. In 1940, 18 years before the Great Leap Forward, Lashensko was named as the director of the Institute of Genetics within the USSR's Academy of Sciences. There, he corruptly used his political influence to suppress all dissenting opinions and to discredit all of his critics to the point that many were sent to the gulags of Siberia. Soon, fellow scientists learned to nod their heads at any idea that their boss floated, no matter how ridiculous it may have been. His original idea, cross-breeding winter wheat seedlings, was plagiarized from farmers who had been practicing the act for the previous 100 years. Faced with the necessity to increase crop yields, 
the People's Republic of China adopted a number of Lachensko's pseudo-scientific ideas. First, he believed that a plant's descendants will learn the characteristics of their forefathers, i.e., if you treat a plant a certain way, its descendants will naturally inherit those characteristics. Thus, he encouraged the Chinese to plant winter wheat in boggy, frozen ground so that its descendants would prefer boggy, frozen ground. According to his falsified experiments, this method increased productivity by 400%. According to my rudimentary gardening skills and knowledge, it just kills the first plant. Next, he believed in a system of close cropping, in which seeds were sowed densely, because in his mind, they wouldn't compete with like-minded seeds. That would be something akin to genocide against their own kind. Instead, he imagined that balance and harmony ensured when seeds were planted near their own breed. Again, my basic understanding of plants simply tells me that all of the crops will lack the resources and nutrients to survive if they are forced to compete with others. Third, he believed in deep plowing, during which the peasants would use their pig iron plows to dig significantly deeper into the earth's soil. This, in his and his mind only, would cause the plants to have to struggle to get to the top of the surface, and thus would have significantly longer roots, which in the case of rice would create extra yields, and for wheat would result in a plant that could grow significantly higher because of the dense root structure. In practice, this belief resulted in the peasants digging to swimming pool depths before planting their crops. In third grade, I learned that planting a seed too deep will prevent it from getting the sunlight needed to sprout out of the soil. Apparently, my elementary school was slightly better than the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Lastly, Lyshenko believed in concentrated manure, during which peasants would only fertilize the best fields. This had two effects. First, the fields that were struggling did not receive the extra assistance by a manure that they needed. Thus, they withered and died. Secondly, the farms that were successful, despite the deep plowing, suddenly got a significant amount of manure dropped on top of them. This additional barrier often prevented the plants from reaching the surface, and thus, the fields withered and died. But these weren't the worst of Lashensko's suggestions as his consulting work for the CCP culminated in the Four Pests Campaigns of 1958. During this campaign, Mao identified four pests who were holding back his nation. These four were the sparrows, which ate the grain seed and fruit that was painstakingly being grown in the fields. Mosquitoes, who were the carriers of diseases such as malaria, rats, who continued to spread the plague, and airborne flies, which were just plain annoying. Oddly enough, Mao never referred to the lice that infected his own body as a species that needed to be cleansed from the earth. 
the Smash the Sparrows campaign was central to the Great Leap Forward, and the Commune set out with their usual sense of enthusiasm to fulfill the chairman's command. Sparrows were demonized for consuming about four pounds of grain per year. Communes hunted down their nests, destroyed their eggs, and shot any bird on sight. Without access to accurate weapons, however, the peasants mostly just grabbed their brooms and pots and pans to make as much noise so that sparrows would terrifyingly fly away upon landing. Eventually, the birds just fell from the sky, dead from exhaustion. The communes which killed the most pests were publicly rewarded, and the results of the campaign were eye-poppingly insane. According to public records, the four pests campaign killed 1.5 billion rats, 1 billion sparrows, 220 million pounds of flies, and over 24 million pounds of mosquitoes. The campaign had achieved its objectives with remarkable success. But always be aware of unintended policy consequences, particularly when you upset the natural food chain. It turns out that the sparrow was the only natural predator of indigenous Chinese locusts. Without their mortal enemy, locusts began to swarm throughout the countryside, ravaging hundreds of thousands of pounds of grain, far more than would have been consumed by the sparrows. One year following the four pests campaign, crop production had declined by 15%. The locusts, combined with crop failures as a result of Lachensko's oddball theories, contributed directly to the production decline. China also experienced drought and flooding during this period as well, but only the CCP policies can fully explain what came next. The next three years became known as the Bitter Years. Grain production during this period fell from 200 million tons to only 143 million tons. Agricultural meat production also suffered a severe decline, dropping from 4 million to 1 million tons during the Bitter Years. The elderly in the Houses of Happiness were the first to suffer, as their rations were cut even more severely than the working populace. The Atlantic writes that, quote, while their children were slaving in fields and factories, the elderly were starved, beaten, and buried. Surviving family members discovered their loss when they returned from work, with the state having taken care of the burial in a more efficient way already, the families were expected to be back in the fields the following morning, as if nothing had occurred. Somewhere between 18 and 45 million Chinese starved to death, which is an extremely painful and horrifically slow way to die. The book Tombstone, The Great Chinese Famine, 1958 to 1962, gives us a glimpse into the human suffering from Mao's wayward policies. The author is Yang Zheheng, 
and his father was one of the victims of the Great Leap Forward. He recalls tales of false reporting by peasants who hoped to claim the prize for the best harvest. Numbers were inflated, photos were taken of peasants standing in swimming pools full of grain, photos which were all doctored. The author uses numbers published by the state-controlled and censored People's Daily. In June, a yield of 1,007.5 kilograms of wheat per month was newsworthy. But three months later, yields across the country were as high as 4,292.8 kilos. Soon, some communes reported 30,263.5 kilos, an increase of 29,000 kilos purely due to the ideas of Lyshenko and Chairman Mao. Despite all evidence to the contrary, the communes continued to falsely report record crop harvests in order to achieve the rank of Sputnik. Rather than Reagan's advice of trust but verify, the CCP continued to take the 70% of the reported totals rather than the actual ones. This left the commune with far less than the 30% that their labor had earned. Some of the communes had falsified their reports to such an extent that they had to turn over the entirety of their crops to the state. It was easy to see that these numbers were purely fictitious. Inspectors would go out into the countryside to collect the grain. They found their numbers lacking and the people in a poor state. The backyard furnaces had destroyed all of their household cooking utensils, such as their cast iron pots and pans. As the workers became hungrier, their work production tapered off, thus producing even less food for them to survive on. The state continued to take their cut and export it to foreign countries, a fact that by itself proves that the CCP was no longer morally fit to govern the People's Republic of China. Food during this time was most commonly exported to Russia, Cuba, and various states of Africa. Yang details the depth of the suffering, telling readers that the Chinese people were, quote, forbidden to cultivate any food crops on the side and forbidden to flee their home villages. They ate bark, weeds, and dirt. Eventually, they ate corpses. Eventually, parents killed children, and children killed siblings to eat them. Fairy tale horrors were rendered in real life. In one instance, a woman who was accused of cannibalism was captured and brought in for mass criticism only to have her accusers, in a frenzy of hunger, devour the bowl of cooked evidence, without which there was nothing to do but adjourn the meeting. Peasants were being given rations of 618 calories a day, despite nutritional requirements for farm work being placed at 3,400, to 4,000 caloric intake. The lack of calories and partial starvation resulted in a plummeting birth rate. In addition to the possibly 45 million that starved to death, one would have reasonably expected another 40 million Chinese to have been born under normal conditions. 
Survivor Li Zhizhen told the Memory Project that the three bitter years did not offer any positive memories. Not a single good day in those three years, he recalls. Many starved to death. As the scope of the disaster became clear, the party organized commune criticism sessions to point blame internally for the commune's problems. These mass criticism sessions were a repeat of the mob-led show trials for landlords at the advent of the party's land reform. They would regularly take up half the day, further preventing workers from tending the fields to maintain necessary production levels. The commune workers turned on each other, blaming individuals who weren't in a state of starvation of hoarding food. Punishments included individuals being burned alive, doused in boiling water, forced to ingest excrement, mutilation, and having salt water injected into their veins. Philosophical thought experiments always turn on the question of, is stealing justified? if it is done in order to right a wrong. For instance, is it morally acceptable to steal if the act prevents a loved one from starving? In China, the answer was a clear-cut no, as the punishments for theft were meted out with such ferocity that the accused would punish themselves to ease their suffering. Such was the fate of one individual whose story was collected by Xu Kuo, a historian attempting to salvage as many first-hand accounts while the survivors remained to walk the earth. Shu writes about a woman who had been discovered cooking some stolen grain. The officials found out about it and confiscated her pot mid-cook. She hung herself that night to avoid a criticism session. The authorities were always on the lookout for deception, pointing out that concealing one kernel of grain was the same as concealing a bullet. According to Yang, local officials beat every last piece of grain out of the people, tearing houses apart, harassing people to death. But still, the amounts of grain that were being publicized could not be found. Decatur estimates that at least 2.5 million people were beaten to death, and between 1 to 3 million committed suicide during this time. Those that starved to death often lied where they had died for months, as no one could spare the energy to properly bury or mourn them. Yang tells us that by the spring of 1960, corpses lay on the roads and in the fields, hardened by the winter cold and bent, often with holes in their buttocks and legs where flesh had been torn off. The survivors blamed dogs for the disfigurement, but the dogs had already been eaten. The truth was that many people that winter and the next survived by preying on the dead, sometimes even on their own family members. Rebellions did occur in multiple provinces, but were always swiftly put down. Apparently, armed uprisings require more than 618 calories per day. Although officially, the cause for the wave of starvation remains drought and flooding, despite the fact that there were no unusual periods of drought or mass flood events on record during this time. 
As the death totals accumulated, it became clear that heads had to roll for such a disastrous policy. And it went all the way to the top. Mao Zedong resigned as state chairman of the People's Republic of China, but maintained his role as head of the party. This meant that the day-to-day decision-making became the responsibility of Liu Shiqi and Deng Xiaoping. They immediately reversed a number of Mao's policies, particularly the one where they had to continue to export food while their own people starved. They introduced a number of capitalist reforms that enabled farmers to begin producing food on the side for their families and for private sale. In one way, the Great Leap Forward had succeeded. The sacrifice of the lives of perhaps 45 million people had enabled the CCP to purchase a large number of tractors. Just a few years after the bitter period had ended, Chinese agricultural production had hit all-time highs for real this time. Perhaps it helped that there were so many less mouths to feed in 1961. Mao's resignation speech occurred at the Lushan Conference on July 23, 1959. I do apologize for the language here, but there isn't any great way of translating Mao's thoughts at the moment, so I'll do so verbatim for his concluding remarks. In the speech, Mao both takes blame while simultaneously deflecting blame, resulting in a mass purge of those at the top of the CCP. Mao states for the record, quote, Coal and iron cannot walk by themselves. They need vehicles to transport them. This I did not foresee. I and the Premier did not concern ourselves with this point. You could say that we were ignorant of it. I am a complete outsider when it comes to economic construction, and I understand nothing about industrial planning. But comrades, in 1958 the main responsibility was mine, and you should take me to task. Who was responsible for the idea of the mass spelting of steel? I say it was me. With this, we rushed into a great catastrophe, and 90 million people went into battle. The chaos caused was on a grand scale, and I take responsibility. Comrades, you must all analyze your own responsibility. If you have to shit, shit. If you have to fart, fart. You will feel much better for it. While Mal likely felt better after admitting fault, he wasn't going to pay any actual consequences for it. His confession was merely an attempt to survive and advance, to go into hiding in the same way that I did on the day that I knew my parents were returning. By retaining the party chairmanship, he still oversaw the people who had the ability to challenge him. Their promotion and lives remained squarely in his hands. He benefited the most from the quick turnaround of China's economy through the stable leadership of Liu and Deng. Lin Bao, the sycophant who created the Little Red Book containing all the quotes and wisdom of Chairman Mao, assured that the military remained behind the chairman. 
but that economic turnaround was almost too good. The success of the country felt as though revisionism regarding communism was creeping in, and Mao once again began to worry about his legacy. Thus, in 1962, he abruptly declared war on India. It was a classic example of a wag-the-dog, rally-around-the-flag moment. The United Service of India connects the two events, writing that Mao's personal doctor recounts that in 1961, that Mao was depressed over the agricultural crisis and angry with the party elite, upon whom he was less able now to work his will. Mao was in temporary eclipse, spending most of his time in bed. By 1962, the situation hadn't improved. A conference in January had affirmed his support within the party was at its lowest. Liu Shaqi was even willing to tell conference-goers that man-made disasters strike the whole country. The conflict with India was to be his comeback. The Chinese-Indian border still continues today to be a source of friction between the two nations. Military outposts have turned the border into somewhat of a jigsaw puzzle, and it is common to experience regular shellings from the opposing side particularly after a speech in September, during which Mao Zedong spoke harshly about reformists within the party, including Premier Zhao Enlai. Soon after an Indian aggression, the Chinese responded via telegraph to their Indian counterparts that he who plays with fire will eventually be consumed by fire. If the Indian side should insist on threatening by armed force, the Chinese border defense forces are duty-bound to defend their territory and thereby arouse their resistance. It must bear the responsibility for all the consequences arising therefrom." It also didn't help that around this time the Dalai Lama had escaped from Tibet through Indian territory. China started the Sino-Indian War on October 20, 1962, and then signed a ceasefire one month and one day later. The Indian forces suffered 88 deaths and 163 wounded, while the Chinese lost 340 lives and tended to 450 wounded. Despite these totals, the Chinese emerged victorious, and Mao was once again viewed as the preeminent power within the nation. Soon, he would have enough power to initiate his next great purge, an event known as the Cultural Revolution, designed to cement Mao Zedong as the unquestioned leader within the People's Republic of China. We will examine that travesty in our next episode. <laughs>